Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode contains discussions of gang violence, assault, and murder that some listeners may find disturbing. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. It was a beautiful Los Angeles evening in November of 2001. By midnight, the desert air had turned crisp and cool. And as her boyfriend Dwayne drove his Mitsubishi Montero through the small village of Atwater, Marjorie Mendoza stared out the passenger side window. She was looking forward to a good night. Marjorie and Dwayne had a friend with them. 16-year-old Erica Ree was sitting in the back seat. The trio was on their way to meet up with some friends. But as Dwayne maneuvered the car through the darkened street of Hollydale Drive, Marjorie tensed her body ever so slightly. This was Toonerville, an area of Atwater that was claimed by a gang of the same name. Marjorie had heard they had a new leader these days, a guy named Timothy McGee, but everyone called him Wado. People were talking about this guy. He was bald, with a huge tattoo of an eagle eating a snake on the back of his head. It was important to know what he looked like, because Wero was not someone to mess with. Needless to say, driving through this area was risky, but Marjorie's worries melted away as Duane parked the car. They'd made it to their destination without any problems, or so she thought. Suddenly, another car pulled up in front of them, and before Duane, Marjorie, or Erica could react, the driver and passenger side doors burst open. Two men stepped out. One had a goatee and a shock of dyed auburn hair. The other was bald, and as he exited the vehicle, Marjorie could see the tattoo on the back of his head, an eagle eating a snake. It was Wado, and he was coming right toward her. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every episode, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. Today, we're bringing you the story of Timothy Joseph McGee, also known as the Monster of Atwater Village. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. In the first part of this episode, we'll follow McGee as he climbs the ranks of the notorious Toonerville Reefa gang in Los Angeles. Later, we'll look at how McGee went from gang leader to a full-fledged serial killer, and how his gang mentality fanned the flames of his violent desires. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have some terrible consequences. I mean, think about the subject matter we cover on our show. I wonder how much easier it would be if we normalized talking about negative feelings instead of lashing out when it all builds up. I recently had a session where I faced some things going on in my life I hadn't spoken to anyone about, and when I talked about it with my therapist, I realized how heavy it actually was, and I was able to see it in a different light, and it didn't feel as heavy anymore. When you need to talk, but you want a safe space for that conversation, I highly recommend BetterHelp. Even if you haven't experienced major trauma in your life, therapy is excellent for day-to-day positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. 
Visit BetterHelp.com slash Serial Killers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Serial Killers. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. No matter what you're looking for in a non-alcoholic beer, there's only one name that has it all. Athletic Brewing Co. Full flavor? It's athletic. Huge variety? It's athletic. Award-winning styles you can get online, at the bar, or the grocery store? It's athletic. In fact, when it comes to amazing non-alcoholic beer, there's no question. It's athletic. Ask for it and find out. Go to askforathletic.com to find your closest retailer today. Near beer. There's something undeniably addictive about power. The more you have it, the more you want it. And for some, the feeling is so all-consuming that they're willing to risk anything and everything to get it. For criminal gangs, this power often comes at a great cost. To maintain their dominance over a community and other rival gangs, members often swallow whatever morals they have and resort to a life of crime and violence. For Atwater Village's Tunerville Reefa gang, there was no one more powerful than Timothy McGee. He was cold, he was ruthless, and he was willing to do whatever it took to remain the top dog. And while we don't know much about his early life, we do know that he was raised in the very place that the Tunerville Reefa called home, Atwater Village in Los Angeles, California. Nestled in the city of Los Angeles, Atwater Village wasn't your average neighborhood. In the years leading up to 1950, the Tunerville Reefa set up shop there, with its numbers eventually reaching several hundred members. But compared to other, much larger gangs in the sun-kissed metropolis, the Tunerville Reefa was nothing more than a small fish in a big pond. But for McGee, who was born in the spring of 1973, it appears being a part of the group was enticing enough. After all, a gang was a gang, even if it was small. It offered protection, control, and the promise of power. And at some point, most likely in his teens, McGee joined the Tunerville Reefa and began participating in gang activity. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. According to a study titled Boys Who Join Gangs, a prospective study of predictors of first gang entry, adolescents are drawn to gangs for social, economic, and communal reasons. For many young men, joining a gang offers the kind of control, power, and reliability that they often lack at home or in their communities. But that desire can be dangerous. In their discussion of existing theories, the study authors explain that non-antisocial youths may join gangs for reasons of self-esteem, power, and protection, but are encouraged to participate in antisocial behavior by the group after joining. In other words, they might become more willing to commit crimes if it means staying in the group. Again, because we know so little about McGee's upbringing, we can't say for certain if he displayed any violent or antisocial behaviors prior to joining the gang. 
But once he did, it appears he let his most violent urges flourish. In the mid-1990s, when McGee was only 21, he assaulted a police officer in San Bernardino County. He was eventually charged, convicted, and sentenced to four years behind bars. And while we don't know much about this experience, we do know that he served about three years. In early 1997, McGee became a free man, but he was by no means rehabilitated. If anything, after years of living under the watchful eyes of prison guards, he was hungry for some real autonomy. At this point, McGee was likely a mid-level member of the Tunerville Rifa. At the very least, he was someone who'd proven his worth, who wasn't afraid of doing whatever he needed to do, even if it meant going to jail for it. But in the fall of 1997, the 24-year-old proved his loyalty in an entirely new way. Like any other criminal gang, the Tunerville Rifa had its fair share of rivals. Frogtown was one of them. They also operated in northeastern Los Angeles near Atwater Village. It isn't clear why exactly the two groups were at odds, but we do know that there were regular disputes between them. In addition to conflict over each group's borders, there was always the incentive to prove one gang's strength over the other. Sometimes that simply meant stealing from another gang or beating someone up, but this time, it meant murder. Unfortunately, we don't know much about this particular hit, but for whatever reason, McGee was the one who got the job. He killed 25-year-old Frogtown gang member Ronnie Martin. Once again, it isn't clear why Martin was chosen, but it definitely delivered a message. The Tunerville Rifa were not to be messed with. And despite being freshly released from prison, McGee didn't shy away from the task. In his mind, this was likely a chance to move up the ranks. So in the fall of 1997, McGee drove out to Frogtown territory with a few other Tunerville Rifa members. Together, they prowled the rival turf, looking for Martin. When they finally found him, chaos ensued. McGee aimed his gun and shot Martin over 25 times, unloading bullet after bullet into his body. Moments later, McGee's car leapt to life, screeching away from the scene before anyone had a chance to call the cops. While Martin took his last breaths, the Tunerville boys were in high spirits, likely nudging McGee and whooping his nickname, Wado, a term used to describe light-skinned people. You see, a hit was a rite of passage, a way to cement a member's allegiance to the gang. And there was no question about it, McGee had just solidified his place as a senior member of the gang. Now, to his crew, he was a big deal. McGee was also realizing something about himself, too. As he sat there, with the gun still warm in his hand, he felt a thrill, unlike anything he'd ever felt before. This was pure power, the ability to snuff out the flame of someone's life in an instant. It was an addictive sensation, and he wanted more of it. Coming up, McGee's taste for murder leads to a terrifying string of deaths in the city. Massive spiders, fierce crocodiles, violent kangaroos, with all of the dangers lurking within Australia, one species remains feared above the rest. Humans. Hi listeners, it's Alastair from Parcast, and I'm hosting a new Spotify original called Crime Down Under. 
Every Sunday on Spotify, take a trip to the oldest continent for some of the most shocking true crime cases in modern history. Featuring a compilation of episodes from shows across Parcast Network, Crime Down Under exposes the vicious serial killers, mysterious disappearances, and terrifying crime families whose stories still stop Aussies dead in their tracks. From the beaches and deserts to the cities and suburbs, the land down under may be vast, but the horrors are hiding around every corner. Catch a new episode of Crime Down Under every Sunday. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. By 1997, 24-year-old Timothy Wado McGee had proved himself to be a valuable member of the Toonerville Rifa gang. That year, he killed a rival gang member, 25-year-old Ronnie Martin, in cold blood. But McGee didn't just kill Martin, he destroyed him. He reportedly riddled the young man's body with more than 25 bullets. Needless to say, McGee was proving to be a ruthless killer. He showed no remorse, no shock at taking another man's life. If anything, it seemed to gratify him. In some ways, it's not surprising that McGee felt this way. Within the ecosystem of a gang, violence is treated as a necessary and sometimes glorified part of membership. It's used as a way to emphasize the group's strength and collective power, but that can also affect an individual's sense of self-worth too. According to a study titled Social Psychology of Gangs, an Intergroup Communication Perspective, gang members feel better about themselves when they participate in activities that benefit the group as a whole. And with one less rival gang member on their turf, McGee's actions positively affected his group. Toonerville Rifa members not only felt stronger, they knew they were now more feared by other gangs, and that only strengthened their bond. As such, McGee probably felt excited to commit more acts of violence. But before he could, his life was diverted by yet another stint in prison. At some point in late 1997, 24-year-old McGee was sent back to jail for a totally unrelated offense, parole violation. We don't know exactly what he did to earn this particular stay behind bars, but for the second time in his life, McGee found himself a guest of the California Department of Corrections with a two-year sentence. But his second stint was altogether different than his first. Now a higher-ranking member of a Los Angeles gang, McGee carried a level of respect among the other inmates. He likely had friends on the inside, other gang members or prisoners he'd met during his first time in jail. It's relatively common for gang members to find themselves going back and forth between prison and civilian life. It was simply a part of the gig. Local police were tenacious about finding ways to send known criminals back to jail. It wasn't always easy to pin larger crimes onto someone like Tim McGee. His gang was more than willing to intimidate anyone who might have incriminating information. 
Something like parole violation, then, was a much simpler way to send McGee back to the big house and get him off the streets, even for a couple of years. But this charge didn't keep McGee away from the world for long. He was released after two years, and in the summer of 1999, the 26-year-old hit the ground running. On the night of October 17th, it's believed that McGee and at least one other man headed to Echo Sound's recording studios, where 23-year-old bodyguard Dwayne Dupree and a number of rappers, including Javon Jones and Willard Givers, were posted up outside on the patio. As far as we know, McGee didn't have any connection to these men, but it didn't seem to matter. For reasons unknown, McGee and his fellow gang members supposedly advanced on the strangers, opened fire, and fled the scene. Just like before, McGee didn't wait around to see the results of his attack, but it seems he had claimed another life. While Jones and Givers survived with relatively minor injuries, Dupree died of multiple shots to the chest. McGee might not have killed everyone at the scene, but the hit was still a major milestone. If he was indeed the one responsible for it, that meant he'd executed another attack and gotten away with it. Eventually, local law enforcement began to suspect that the Tunerville Rifa was responsible for the hit, but they didn't have any solid evidence to prove it. The shooting had been so quick with few witnesses, or at least few witnesses who were willing to talk. Whatever hunch the police may have had, it evidently wasn't enough to bring McGee or his men to the station for questioning. Their hands were tied. But a few months later, authorities scored a minor victory. While they still couldn't tie McGee to the Echo Studios hit, they were able to nab him for another parole violation. In February of 2000, McGee was convicted and would spend the next two months behind bars. Of course, by this point, prison was a regular part of his life. It wasn't a big deal, and certainly nothing worth being worried about. And when McGee was released later that spring, he had much to look forward to. See, the Echo Sounds hit didn't just reveal a ruthless killer, it had also shown that there was someone capable of successfully managing other members of the group. Assuming it was McGee who orchestrated the hit, it makes sense that he soon rose to the top of the heap and became the head of the entire Tunerville gang. Presumably, this meant that he was the one to call all the shots. He told members where to be, what to do, and most importantly, who to kill. And it seems McGee had plans to kill a lot of people. For decades, the Tunerville Rifa had existed as a moderately small group that, when compared to other Los Angeles area gangs, didn't command as much attention. McGee wanted to change all that. He reportedly started commanding his men as if they were a paramilitary organization. He made them exercise as a group and take part in regular target practice and tactical training. He also treated Atwater Village as if it were a fortress, apparently placing sentries along all the major streets in the area. If a rival gang was spotted in Atwater, or if a sentry noticed suspicious activity, they were to notify him immediately. In McGee's mind, the Tunerville Rifa had to be ready at all times for an attack. It could be the police, a rival gang, even just a single person who wanted to spark a fight. More importantly, McGee wanted to show that Tunerville was not a group to be messed with, and he had a unique way of doing that. On random days, he'd announced to his men that they were going hunting. They'd allegedly pile in a car with McGee at the wheel and drive around in rival gang territory as if they were in a wild game preserve, looking for something to shoot. 
On a warm night in June of 2000, McGee took his men out for one of these drives. He coasted slowly through the neighborhoods of a rival gang known as the Rascals until he saw someone he recognized. 16-year-old Ryan Gonzalez was a member of the Rascals, but other than being a rival gang member, he had no connection to McGee. In fact, we don't know much about Gonzalez at all, but based on his age and lack of criminal history, it's likely that he was a relatively new member. As such, McGee had no real reason to target him. That is, except for one small detail. All of his friends called him Wado, the same nickname that McGee went by. It was reason enough. While the details of this hit are scarce, McGee likely showed up out of nowhere and started shooting at Gonzalez, firing round after round into his body. Afterwards, McGee sped off as quickly as he'd arrived. Turning to his passengers, he calmly explained that there wasn't enough room in northeastern Los Angeles for two guys with the same nickname. So, one had to go. McGee had pulled off another successful hit. Just like the others, he'd chosen a victim, riddled him with bullets, then disappeared into the night. It appears that nights like this kept the Toonerville Reefa busy well into the following year. McGee and his men made countless drives, looking for people to kill. At this point, McGee was certainly on the LAPD's radar. He wasn't just another member of a low-level gang. He was now the top dog of a group that was becoming increasingly dangerous. Things eventually became so bad that even driving through Toonerville territory was considered risky for anyone. There was no way to know when McGee would strike or who he'd choose as his next victim. He held all the cards. McGee loved this power. He was the reason people were afraid. He could do anything, kill anyone, and no one could stop him. But it was an addictive feeling that never seemed to last. With the highest highs came the inevitable, miserable crash. And so it appears McGee always needed to feed his cravings, and that meant more hunting. But as the months wore on, he stopped looking for rival gang members to kill. In fact, he didn't seem to care who he chose or why. Everyone was a target. Coming up, one of McGee's followers finally breaks ranks. Listen closely. As a master painter carefully brushes Benjamin Moore Regal Select down the seam of the wall. It's like poetry in motion. Benjamin Moore, see the love. Yeah. You know you need protein to fuel results, but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland chalky shake every day. Stop punishing yourself and get to GNC for the best protein in the game, including all the hottest brands and crave-worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more. We're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies, your favorite cereals, indulgent desserts, and more. So bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices. Fuel your fitness with protein at GNC. Now back to the story. By the end of 2000, 27-year-old Timothy Wado McGee was the leader of Atwater's Toonerville Reefa gang. His plan was to make them one of the most feared gangs in Los Angeles. At first, McGee attacked only members of rival gangs. That way, their deaths could serve as a message, don't mess with Toonerville Reefa. But as the year wore on, something changed. It stopped mattering if the person was a known enemy of the gang. 
At some point, McGee started picking people at random, and his target would hardly know what was going on before it was too late. That was certainly true for 17-year-old Marty Royball. On September 14th, he'd been looking forward to an afternoon by the LA River. It was a gorgeous day that promised no rain. He could sit and draw for hours uninterrupted. But suddenly, he heard the sound of tires screeching to a halt behind him. A man got out of the car. He was bald with a huge tattoo on the back of his head. Police believe it was none other than Tim McGee. The ruthless gang leader allegedly pulled out a gun, aimed it at the teenager, and fired. Marty collapsed, and a halo of blood slowly pooled around him. But McGee wasn't done. He looked around and noticed that 33-year-old David Lamont Martin had witnessed the entire incident. McGee made the decision in a millisecond. This man would have to die, too. He likely walked over to David and shot him as if it was the most normal thing in the world. Meanwhile, the other gang members watched in silence. They'd certainly seen McGee kill someone before, but this was definitely different. It was a random kid, a total stranger. Needless to say, it's not hard to imagine that they might have felt conflicted about this hit. But even if they did, there wasn't anything they could do about it. McGee was the boss, and his word was law. So they just stood there and watched as McGee, who was allegedly standing over the man's lifeless body, turned to them and casually said he was hungry and that they should grab something to eat. Unfortunately, this incident wouldn't be the last one like it. Over the course of the year, it's thought that McGee kept targeting victims at random. For him, the hunt was the greatest thrill. The enjoyment McGee got out of these perverse hunts isn't an anomaly. A study titled Understanding the Psychology of Gang Violence, published by the United Kingdom's Ministry of Justice in 2011, explains that gangs often treat violence as a way to have fun with other members of the group. Murder can occasionally be trivialized and treated almost as a game in these kinds of situations. But McGee's alleged random attacks also show that he had a much darker, potentially psychopathic relationship with murder. In another study titled Psychopathy, Gang Membership and Moral Disengagement Among Juvenile Offenders, lead author Katie Dingra notes that gangs tend to attract men with a strong psychopathic personality. These are people who have little to no empathy and who use manipulation to get what they want from others. While it's unclear if he was ever diagnosed, McGee certainly fit this description. He had no remorse for his victims and used violence to gain a sense of satisfaction in his own power. In other words, it was almost as if McGee was born to be in a gang. In a group that intentionally treated violence as a game, he was free to pursue his murderous desires. And he certainly exploited this power. After allegedly killing Roy Ball and David by the L.A. River, he amped up his violent attacks to an alarming degree. He's suspected of killing strangers, other criminals, and anyone who he saw as a potential threat. But it wasn't always clear what threat these victims posed, or if there was any threat at all. Usually, McGee chose someone at random. Maybe that person gave him a bad look, or perhaps they were just the first person he saw in rival territory. Frankly, it didn't seem to matter to him. On November 9th, 2001, McGee was on another drive, looking for his next target. It didn't take long for him to choose. McGee saw 25-year-old Marjorie Mendoza and her boyfriend, Dwayne Natividad, driving a Mitsubishi Montero. 
Their friend, 16-year-old Erica Ree, was in the back seat. McGee and his men followed the car to the 3100 block of Hollydale Drive, right in the middle of Toonerville territory. When the vehicle parked, McGee sped his car onto the curb, blocking Duane from escape. And just like before, McGee didn't waste any time. He and another gang member got out with their guns drawn. Without saying a word, they opened fire. Duane tried reversing the car, but the bullets kept on coming. And as he shielded himself, he got hit in the hand. Meanwhile, Erica ducked in the back seat and was spared any injuries. Marjorie wasn't so lucky. In McGee's wild barrage of bullets, he shot her multiple times. Then as quickly as the shooting had started, it stopped. McGee and his accomplice jumped back into their car and drove off. Seeing that Marjorie was hurt, Duane sped to the nearest hospital, but it was no use. She died from her wounds that same night. Soon after that, the story of the Atwater Village shootings broke across Los Angeles, the latest in a terrifying chain. And while we don't know for certain if either Duane or Erica named the shooter, McGee quickly landed on the list of suspects. By now, he was a well-known name in the city, and he was a very real threat. Something had to be done about it. The police had been monitoring McGee for years, but despite this, it was difficult to pin any one offense onto him. Detectives suspected that he was responsible for the deaths of Ronnie Martin and Ryan Gonzalez, but they needed hard evidence to have any chance at a conviction. And so far, that had been difficult. Very few gang members were willing to talk to the police. But soon after the murder of Marjorie Mendoza, one person chose to break their silence. We don't know much about Christina Duran, but we do know that she was close with McGee. He certainly seemed to trust her, because after killing Marjorie, McGee asked Christina for a favor. McGee had dropped his girlfriend's phone at the scene of the shooting, and he needed someone to retrieve it. For whatever reason, he chose Christina, and she was ready to do as she was told. It must have been a visceral experience to gingerly walk over the broken glass at the crime scene. There might still have been blood on the pavement when Christina knelt down to search for the phone. Hearing about a drive-by is one thing, but seeing the aftermath is something entirely different. Within a few days of the shooting, she decided to tell the police what she saw. She likely knew that it was a risky choice, but she did it anyway. Her interview was recorded on video. In it, she explained that McGee was involved in the death of Marjorie Mendoza. He was a murderer. But Christina's statement wasn't the only thing that placed McGee at the scene of the shooting. An unnamed witness also told police that one of the shooters had a distinctive tattoo on the back of his head, an eagle eating a snake. A tattoo just like McGee's. For the police, this information was like striking gold. They could finally issue a warrant for his arrest. And on November 14th, just five days after the shooting, the police made an announcement they'd wanted to make for a long time. Timothy McGee was wanted for murder. But while the police might have seen this as a step closer to nabbing McGee, he saw it as a challenge. Of course, he needed to lay low and stay out of custody, but his first order of business was to find the snitch who talked to the police. It's not clear how McGee discovered that Christina had betrayed him, but only days after she went to the authorities, he allegedly killed her in what police later described as an execution-style shooting. As far as we know, that meant McGee shot Christina at close range. And knowing McGee's M.O., he likely murdered her suddenly and without much fanfare. 
then, by mid-2002, McGee had gone into hiding. He moved from his home turf in Atwater Village to Las Vegas and Arizona, and then back again, never staying in any one location for too long. This method proved to be successful. He threw off the police time and time again, even staying in rival gang territory as a way of throwing them off the scent. But for their part, the authorities weren't idle. The LAPD publicized their hunt for McGee not only across California, but throughout the entire country. They teamed up with other state police and federal law enforcement, and even offered a $50,000 cash reward for information that could lead to his capture. In early 2003, America's Most Wanted even ran an episode about Timothy McGee, which included dramatizations of his crimes. Soon enough, his status as a criminal reached legendary levels. And the longer he hid from the police, the more notorious he became. But slowly, law enforcement started to piece his movements together. And in February of 2003, local police in Bullhead City, Arizona, received a tip that a man matching McGee's description was renting an apartment in the town. On February 11th, the LAPD sent a squad to monitor the apartment. They couldn't take any decisive action until they were absolutely sure that this was McGee. A few times, they saw a man leave the building and drive off to a mobile home, but it was too dark to positively identify him. So the team also began monitoring the mobile home. Then on February 12th, they saw him. He'd grown out his hair, but there was no doubt about it. It was McGee, leaving the mobile home with an unknown woman. But the police wanted to wait for the perfect opportunity. They watched as the woman got into the driver's seat and McGee sat next to her. And as they drove away, the police followed behind at a safe distance. The two cars eventually reached a residential stretch of road where there was no traffic and no easy way to escape. This was the moment. The police switched their lights on and slammed on the gas. In a swift motion, they forced the car onto the side of the road, making it impossible for the woman driving to try to escape. It was a move McGee had used countless times, but this time, he was the one who was trapped. After months of hiding, McGee didn't resist or try to run. In fact, he hardly said a word. He just glared at the officers as they placed him in handcuffs and sat him in the back seat of their vehicle. After this, things moved quickly. McGee was taken back to Los Angeles, where he was held in jail awaiting his murder trial for the death of Marjorie Mendoza, Ronnie Martin, and Ryan Gonzalez. Unfortunately, that process took several years, and the trial itself was complicated. McGee had already murdered a key witness, so prosecutors needed new testimony, and that meant getting gang members to speak out against their fearsome leader. This was no easy task. Many witnesses had to be forced to testify by the police. And when they did, some had to be relocated for their own safety. And even more, changed their story once they were on the stand. All the while, McGee stared daggers at his men, daring anyone to defy him. But McGee's threatening glances didn't stop every witness from sharing their story. Thanks to their testimonies, the prosecution painted a clear picture of McGee. He wasn't just a gang leader, he was a serial killer who took pleasure in murdering random strangers. Finally, on October 25, 2007, 34-year-old Timothy McGee was convicted in the murders of Ronnie Martin, Ryan Gonzalez, and Marjorie Mendoza. And in January 2009, a judge announced his punishment, the death sentence. 
It's easy to imagine that even after this verdict, McGee saw himself as the top dog. He was still the so-called monster of Atwater Village, the man with all the power. But the truth was, he'd never have that level of influence again, at least not in the same way. Currently, McGee is held at San Quentin State Prison on death row, over 350 miles away from the city he used to terrorize. And though he's stuck behind bars, prison life doesn't likely bother him. If anything, he's probably established himself as a leader among the other inmates. A man like McGee will always find ways to attain dominance. But being the head of a prison group isn't the same thing as running a ruthless gang, and McGee definitely knows it. He may find ways to keep himself at the top of the heap behind bars, but it won't match what he once had. He'll never strike fear into an entire community ever again. Thanks again for tuning into Serial Killers. We'll be back soon with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Have a killer week. Serial Killers is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Georgia Hampston, with writing assistance by Jane O. and Joel Callen, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Serial Killers stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Hi there, it's Alastair from Parcast. You may have heard of the Somerton Man, Azaria Chamberlain, or the Wonder Beach Murders. But do you know the whole terrifying truth? Be sure to check out my new series, Crying Down Under, where we travel to the land down under to explore the most shocking true crime cases in Australian history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Crime Down Under, and catch a new episode every Sunday, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.